listening to Syntax, the podcast with the tastiest web development treats out there. Strap yourself in and get ready. Here is Scott Talensky and Wes Boss. I can hear your stomach grumbling. It's time for the potluck. Welcome to Syntax. This is the tastiest podcast around about web development. If you're just tuning in, <laughs> we are doing a potluck episode today. We've got some awesome questions around Gatsby and Next and a new tab, installed components and Vue and jQuery and Nuxt and Next and some really good JavaScript questions coming at us today. With me, as always, is Mr. Scott Talinsky. How are you doing today, Scott? Hey, doing good, man. I just behind the scenes here is a little behind the scenes when we do our we do a clap to sync BTS. the audio. Yeah. Yeah. We do a one, two, three clap. And it's always off because Wes uses Bluetooth headphones and there's latency. But <laughs> Uh, we clapped and when I put my hands down, I did so too aggressively and it ripped both of the headphone, <laughs> headphones oh. out of my ears and out of the <laughs> jack. So I'm like struggling. Missed your whole intro. I hope it was awesome. Oh I, man. I'm sure it was. It was one of my best, one of my best. Uh, today we are sponsored by two awesome companies. First one is Log Rocket, which does JavaScript session replay for your application. And second one is Kyle Prinsloo. It's back with his freelancing course. Uh, we'll talk about the, both of them partway through the episode. So lots of questions today. We just went through. We haven't done. We do pot like what? Once a month. And we yeah. went through today and there was just tons of good tons. ones in there. So we just kept adding them and adding them. So let's get right into it. Um, you want to grab it. the first one? Sure. First one is from Salvatore Arganetti. I hope I got that OK. I don't know. I'm sorry, Salvatore. Nailed it. Um, this may be a crazy question, but I need to build a similar system to level up tutorials where people can access content based on a monthly subscription. OK, Uh-oh. so a monthly subscription content. Watch site. out, Scott. Don't answer this. They're coming for me. OK, <laughs> uh, any recommendations on where to start with either Next JS or Gatsby? How do I check if the person is up to date with payments? Any of your help would be graciously, greatly appreciated. Also a fan. Your videos rock. You pay. I pay for your content. Thank you uh, so much, Salvatore. OK, so the answer to this question. OK, this question actually goes along with another one that we're going to talk about a little bit later with the Next JS versus Gatsby stuff, because a lot of that stuff still applies specifically do you get the benefits of a static site if you have user accounts? We'll, we'll talk about that in another question. But so the basics are you need a payment processor that handles reoccurring payments or you need a service like something like Recurly uh, that will be like a full on service to do it for you. If you use Stripe or Braintree, that's going to handle your payments. You need a database component to all of this, which answers some of the other parts of this question, which would be how do you check if a person is up to date? Well, chances are you have a user, you have a user record in your database and you store some sort of a access role onto that user. And what happens is when the subscription charges or fails to charge, I should say, or or does anything or is successful, the service, whether that's Stripe or Braintree, sends a message to a route, aka a webhook, to your website with a message that says, okay, customer number, whatever, payment successful. And then you can do your service to fire off an email saying, hey, your payment was successful, whatever. Or they send a message saying, hey, past due. Or they send a message saying, hey, this account has been canceled. So really, your server and your database isn't going to be managing the timing of any of this, but the timing of when people uh, subscribe or gain access is all done through the payment processor itself, their reoccurring payment system, and your database is just kept up to date 
when their messages come in. So no need to worry about uh, setting up timers or, or checking things monthly or whatever. Uh, it's all about webhooks and the message to keep your users up to date with the payment processor. Beautiful. We'll, we'll talk about the next verse Gatsby stuff in a, a future question, but thanks for sending that in. Next one was from Anon. What is your favorite new tab page? And this is, this is a good one. I actually just went through this myself. My favorite new tab page is about blank, which is just absolutely nothing. I used to have to install a Chrome extension to even get this, which is yeah, weird. Yeah. Because I, I don't even want like your recent or most visited, especially because uh, when I record tutorials, I don't want that stuff just showing up. No. Even if I use like a different profile and, and I don't want any of that. So just blank new page. Um, I know some people have like motivational quotes or their to-do list or whatever, but I've found over the years that just nothing works best. You know, what's nice is in Firefox, uh, they do have the top sites and highlights pop up, right? Yeah. But those are both accordions and they remember your position. So I just, I just hide both of those accordions or, or collapse them. So now when I create yeah. a new tab, it's essentially just a blank page uh, with a Google bar if you need to search in there. Although I never seem to use that because I just search in the URL bar yeah. itself. Yeah, that's my favorite. Firefox does a great job. They just let you uncheck all the boxes. So they have web search, top sites, recommended by pocket, um, highlights. By the way, that like recommended. I hate that on everything. Like my Google home has yeah. that in it. Like I turn that off. Yeah. Yeah. Can you turn off news on Google Home? Because it just shows me like the uh, most awful stuff uh, that's going on in the world. And my kids just like uh, accidentally tap it and they're like, bombs yeah. are dropped on every country in the world. I know. I know. Landon figured out how to get YouTube going on the Google Home screen. Oh, man. Just like, please don't. <laughs> please stop. Anyways. Yeah. So Firefox has all these different things. You just take them all off. And uh, I highly recommend it. It's good. Just um, it's so, sort of a trend. We talked about this with the bookmarks as well. Just uh Try to keep stuff as minimal as possible, at least for me. I, I, it works well for me. It doesn't overwhelm me. I have too many distractions already. I'm good yeah. enough at distracting myself. I don't need Firefox <laughs> to step in and be like, hey, you know what? Let's actually distract you a little bit more. You know, I have to I have to work at that. So, all right. Next question is from Uverus. Uh, gosh, man, I'm getting a hard name today. You got yeah. Anon. And I got, got Uverus. Yeah. And oh, come on. OK, so this question is CSS versus SCSS versus styled components. When you are developing a React or Next.js application, which styling method do you use and why? Which one is best practice in quotes or the most efficient way of going about it? OK, uh, there's no best practice here. So uh, you can write excellent CSS using yeah. CSS, SCSS, or style components, or emotion, or any of this stuff, it's all going to allow you to write quality CSS. What matters is that you're following some sort of a system that allows you to write, not necessarily the driest code of all time, but write code that is efficient, does what it needs to be, and is updatable and uh, extendable and all those those wonderful things. So if I'm writing CSS or SCSS, I'm always using something like BEM over a system that I have established myself that really follows sort of the same sort of principles. I largely think about things in components now anyway, so it's all very component-based in my mind. But yeah, I, I, my thoughts are that you can write amazing CSS with any of these. I use styled components primarily because I just like the way it works and I like the ease of use of everything. Uh, but, you know, to each their own. Yeah, I, I think you nailed it. Is that as long whatever you're doing, just make sure you're using some sort of system. 
Um, whether that's BEM and you you figure that out on your own or, or whether that's styled components where you create a new component for that. So my approach, I've said this before, but my approach to writing CSS in a React application would be I, I do my sort of global styles first. And I think like a lot of people are a little bit afraid to like use global styles because they oh, get I use bad. But like yeah, go nuts, do your, yeah. do your base stuff first. So fonts and, and sizes and... Uh, background colors, all of that sort of like base stuff. Go ahead and do that, and then go by, go component by component. Um, and the other thing that I do is that, like, if I've got a div, and that div has um, some text in it, and it has an unordered list and and a list item, um, some people will go bananas and make like a new component for the paragraph, for the unordered list, for the list item, and for a button inside of that thing. And then mm-hmm, all of a sudden you got like mm-hmm. six different components. So what I do is I'll just create a component for that thing that I'm styling and I'll sort of like eyeball it and say like, ah, this is, this is like a, this is a one thing. This is a component. And then I'll just use descendant selectors inside of that. So maybe I'll grab the div that wraps the entire component. And then inside of that, I'll use my paragraph selector, list item selector, unordered list selector, button selector. And then if I find myself saying, ah, I need to take this unordered list and I want to be able to reuse this somewhere else, then I'll just refactor it out into its own component. And I won't really stress all that much out about it. Don't go bananas on creating a new style component for absolutely everything because that that seems hard. And that seems like, I don't know, I, I always just found myself being able to to do it much easier. So oh, totally. that's kind of where I go. There's There's no like real best practice or efficient way. You'll certainly hear people spout opinions and write huge medium blog posts on either side. But who cares at the end of the day, as long as you feel confident in the approach that you're taking. Do you use the CSS prop in styled components? Um, Is that when you're doing like nested stuff? It's when you just want to write some string CSS as a prop on a component. Oh, oh, like just like inline, you mean? It's like inline styles. Yeah. Straight up string CSS. Um, I haven't, but when I do need to write inline CSS, I just, you'd use like the object syntax. So I can imagine the CSS being nice. Yeah. It's basically the object syntax without an object. Yeah. That's nice. Actually. I don't like writing the object syntax. Yeah. I do it for prototyping, especially when I'm just like still dreaming of what the component's going to look like. I just start throwing string CSS into everything. And then because it's a string, you can just copy and paste it directly into your style component if you do want to merge or move it there anyway. So uh, I find that to be a really handy tool within styled components. Yeah, that's great. Maybe I will start using that. I will say the one thing I do love about these style components and emotion and all these things is that it doesn't make you think of names and classes for absolutely (laughs) everything. Like like the big no-no is don't use element selectors, meaning like don't say H2 and style all of your H2s and don't don't say paragraph tag. And but with style components, you can because it's all scoped. It's scoped to that component. And, you know, there's like one paragraph tag in that component. So that's totally fine. Yeah, I like that, too. All right. Next question is from Rob. He links to lithtml.polymerproject.org. What do you think of lithtml? So this like lit HTML, somebody recommended this to me at one point because I do a lot of vanilla JavaScript and I do a lot of templating vanilla JavaScript with just back ticks. And there's there's a little bit missing there in terms of like sanitization and they're not actually doing document.create element. They're, they're just grabbing a huge string of HTML and dumping that into an element. 
um, with .inner HTML. So this lit HTML looks very similar to template tags in JavaScript, but also sort of like JSX. So what what is the difference between what what is the benefit of this, Scott? I'm just looking at it right now. I forget. This seems more like a framework where you're doing more than just a little bit of like templates. It seems like they're trying to do a little bit more reacty kind of things with it. Oh, it's like like lot you can put variables in your HTML string and they will be re-rendered. Yeah. Uh, when that data changes very much like React will do. And that's good because I see that all the time with vanilla JavaScript. People are like, hey, I put a variable into the string and I changed the variable and it didn't update the string. And it's like, well, yeah, once once it hits a string, it doesn't know about those variables in the future, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it does. It does talk specifically about how it doesn't use the virtual DOM and it's efficient. It's expressive. It's extendable, extensible. I wonder... I don't know the difference between the word extensible and extendable. So uh, <laughs> should Google that extensible <laughs> to able to be extended, extendable. Oh, why not just use the word extendable? If you know yeah. why you would use the word extensible versus extendable, let me know because it cited them as synonyms. This is cool. Like it's, it's a lightweight way to put data into HTML to template out data. And then when that data changes, it will be re-rendered yeah. without the VDOM. We, we should explain what VDOM or virtual DOM is real quick. Um, so the whole idea behind React and I think Vue and a lot of the these places have this idea of the virtual DOM is that they they have the real DOM, which is your your page. And then they have a virtual DOM, which is in memory, they, they keep a sort of a similar tree structure to what your what the DOM looks like. And then when data changes, the virtual DOM will update itself. And then it, it will know which pieces of the actual DOM to update. Um, and that's why React is so fast versus like some like in my vanilla JavaScript course, sometimes I say like, hey, we just got to re-render this entire to-do list because we, there's no, nothing built into vanilla JavaScript that allows you to figure out which part of the DOM has been updated. Um, and it looks like that this does something similar to that. So pretty cool. I would definitely reach for this. It is pretty cool. Yeah, I might check it out just to just to goof around with it. I use like handlebars or some of those templating languages. This seems like it's a little bit more. I don't know. This seems pretty cool. Yeah, well, it's, it's just backticks, right? So it's it's everything you're used to from writing vanilla JavaScript, except it's live. Yeah. Hmm. Live. Yeah, no, it looks interesting. I think this is one of those ones that you want to check out a little bit and it does work with web components. So I, uh, yeah, Polymer Polymer project seems to be alive and well with lit HTML. I, I have not used Polymer in a little bit. So uh, this was exciting to see actually because I had heard of lit HTML, but what I didn't realize is that it was part of Polymer. Oh yeah. When people recommended it to me, I was like, well, I'm not using Polymer, but they're like, no, it runs on its own. Yeah. Just cool. Like imagine JSX, you could just use JSX. I guess it is its own project, but I've never heard of anyone using JSX outside of React world. So it looks like this lit HTML does do that. You can use it in view. Yeah. You can use it right in view. All right. Next question here comes from Daniel Bossman. It's cool. Last Sick name. last name, boss man. Yeah. Sick last name, boss man. Hi, guys. I'm relatively new to React and primarily learning the Create React app way. When you go for the Create React app approach when building an application, and when do you customize the config? 
It is not like React comes with so much magic compared to the others, but I'm uncertain to when it is time to escape the whole create React app approach. And also when escaping it, which main configurations are you grabbing? All right, in my mind, if you're really needing to get into the Babel config, you're needing to do some server-side rendering, you're needing to uh, just really customize beyond what's there, then that's when you go for beyond Create React App. That said, I'm probably not reaching for Create React App for too many of my projects to go into production, not because Create React App isn't great, but because I think that typically if I'm doing another project, like a big project, I'm gonna want things like either static generation or server-side rendering, of which then you're getting into all these custom configs. So I'm going to primarily reach for something like Gatsby, Next.js, or in my case, Meteor, to do those, those aspects. Yeah, I agree as well. I think in most cases, you probably won't have to eject from Create React App. Yeah. Like, what are the reasons you might want to eject from Create React App? The, one of the biggest ones was no SaaS right, support, right, yeah. but I think that's that's been added now. And I guess like another reason would be like, oh, I want to use that new, what's the new question mark thing in objects? Oh, um, optional chaining. Optional chaining. So like, let's say you you needed to add that to your, your Webpack config and you got to, you, you want to try that out. Although it's in Chrome now, which is really cool, but yeah. obviously it's not every browser has it. So you might have to escape for that. I think I would go as far to say don't ever eject from yeah. Create React App. That's so much homework that you have to do to babysit this thing. You get one million files. You can't go. You can't ever un eject. Well, you can un eject. You just have to scrap the thing and copy paste your files into your old one or into a, a new Create React App. But I wouldn't recommend it. I personally have not written any more than a couple lines of Babel or Webpack config in my thing. And, and in most cases, Gatsby and Next.js, they will allow you to just extend the one. So if you need to add something specific, like server-side styled components, you can just add it to your Babel config and it will fold it into to what they have. So yeah, I would just say try not to. And if you really, really, really need to, you probably will reach for one of these more batteries included frameworks that is like Next.js, Gatsby, whatever is out there. Totally. Yeah. hundred percent agree. Next question is from John. Is there a reason the hasty treat intros are two and a half times the length of normal episodes? Now that overcast has intro skipping, it'd be nice if they were uniform in length. I didn't know that overcast added this, but there is no Pocketcast has it too. And it's sick. Really? Yeah. I use it. I would like that because like, I'm so good at skipping the like 14 minutes of Joe Rogan intros <laughs> of like talking about underwear or something like that. So yeah, there's there's obviously no reason. We don't have reason behind much on this podcast, but we are talking about getting some new intros done. So it would be awesome if they were all the same length. Yeah, we should do, we should specify they're this long. I don't know what, what people like. Six minutes. Yeah. Six minute long intros. I feel like that's probably pretty good. Like we could we could tell a little bit of our life story in six minutes before the podcast starts every time. Oh, no. I think they're talking about like the like the like welcome. Yeah, no, they podcast. are. No, they are. Yeah, that's what they're talking they're about. They're not talking about us shooting the shoot because that's genuine content. But what I'm I'm talking about is like, what if our life stories were just part of that intro? 
out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, by way of Denver, Colorado, here is Scott Talisky, who spent most of his career doing this. <laughs> That'd be pretty sweet. You tell the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be pretty funny. Yeah. yeah. You could have a dynamic service that automatically inserted what the current forecast is in Denver and in Toronto. Sure. Just get that over with. Yeah. That would be funny. Yeah. So I don't know. We're, we're going to do some new intros. We've got some really funny ideas for some some new intros. Maybe we'll try to keep them the same length, but if it's funny... Then maybe we'll go longer or shorter. So yeah, we'll specify. We should we should tell the whoever's creating it. Okay, make it thirty seconds or whatever. Yeah, twenty seconds. Yeah, fifteen, whatever. Yeah, but thank you, John. Yeah, thank you. So it's dope that Overcast added that skipping feature, but you don't want to skip our ad reads because uh, then you wouldn't get to hear us talk about why you can save so much time with Log Rocket. Now, LogRocket is the best place to visualize the errors and bugs that are happening on your site. You're going to check it out, logrocket.com forward slash syntax. You'll get 14 days for free. LogRocket gives you a session replay that allows you to see your bugs in action while they're happening. You can click and drag if you like to click and drag and see these things happen. You can see the user click that thing and have your whole website turn into a giant tomato. I don't know how they did that, but you'll be able to find out and see the network requests, the error logs, the Redux store, all that and more. And it works with all of the platforms that you know and love, React, Angular, just JavaScript, Ember, Vue, Redux. And it connects to a lot of the services that you might already be using, such as, you know, Century, Rollbar, New Relic, Jira, Zendesk. All that good stuff. The stuff that we know and love. So check it out at logrocket.com forward slash syndax. All right. Next question is from Daniel Bro. Hello there. I see Kyle Matthews, who created Gatsby, coming out with a lot of input on how Gatsby can be used for web applications. After listening to several of your podcasts, you talk about Gatsby. It doesn't seem like you agree and would go for Next.js instead. In your opinion, is it still the same or is the development at Gatsby really heading in the direction where it is SSG and web applications? Thanks for a great show and keep the good spirit going. I'm usually walking my dog at night listening to you and people stare because I laugh out loud <laughs> from time to time. Yeah, I do that Which too. Would you say SSG means server side generated? Yes. So like that's like Gatsby by default is a server side generated, meaning that it's all generated beforehand and, and generated out to HTML files, which then are rehydrated and then picked up as a React application when you visit the website. Yes. So, okay. So this is the question that we, um, we referred to when we were talking about answering some of that other stuff later on in the episode, because specifically it really depends on what your needs are because with a static site or an SSG, it's really difficult. If you have user accounts, you have to imagine that you cannot server side render uh, like a customer account page for, you know, if you have 10,000 user accounts, you can have 10,000, statically generated pages for each of those experiences, not to mention whatever you have, the header being different. There's just not a whole lot of good ways for that to happen. So then what you end up having is dynamic bits. So not to say that you cannot do it with Gatsby because you absolutely can. User account based sites, all that stuff, it's just going to be dynamic and not statically generated. Where with a Next.js site, the server can render that information because it has that cookie when it's building the site. Right. It's building the site when the user hits the site, that cookie is there 
for their authentication, whatever, they're able to verify that user's authenticated and then the server responds with the fully server rendered site with that user data. So you have to imagine that some of those things when you're getting to user accounts, you have to think about what you need to be present there for the, the server side generated bit and what you need to be dynamic. So that's typically why we say that. We're very aware if you are like a pro Gatsby user, if you're like super Gatsby person and you don't need user pages to be server side generated, you could by all means do any of that stuff with Gatsby. It, it's just all about, I think maybe the right fit for each platform. And me personally, I'd probably reach for something like Next.js for only those reasons specifically. But at the end of the day, like I said, you can certainly do dynamic things in Gatsby like user accounts. Yeah, I, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, so Next.js by default is server rendered, meaning that when you visit a web page, that thing is generated quickly on the server and then served up to whoever's visiting the website. And Gatsby by default is statically generated, meaning that it's all done at build time before you push it out to the website. And then you, if you want anything to be dynamic, you have to do that on the client, meaning like, like, let's say you have a lot of people are talking about using Yatsby for like online stores, yep. but like if there's something that's dynamic, like stock, how much stock is left and you want to display how many are left for a specific size, you need to load the page and then go ahead and then fetch that data and then update the page. And that's where you sometimes get the little spinner on, on page load because it has to load entirely. And then it goes, oh, I got to go figure out if there's any of these left mm -hmm. and it goes off and, and comes back. So for that reason, I don't think that Gatsby's a great they they do say like, of course, you can do static websites with us, but it seems like it's sort of like after the fact, which for some websites is is totally fine. But I certainly would not reach for it that way. And I think Next.js is doing a great job because they've approached it in the opposite way where you can by default, everything is server generated. But now they have this idea of server side generated static pages. So if there are some pages in your application that want to be statically generated, then you just specify that when you're building the application and at build time, they will they will generate though. There's Gatsby is still way ahead in in terms of what the static site generation looks like. But they're certainly like they are getting a little bit closer to each other in, in what they can do. So it would be cool to see some sort of Gatsby server at some point where you get all the amazing benefits of Gatsby. Yeah. Like sometimes I'm almost tempted just to run Gatsby dev on a server or something like that, you know, but uh, I'm not sure what the, the approach is. They did just roll out this like Gatsby builds which they're saying is 20 times faster build times. I'm not sure how they are doing that. Maybe they are running multiple processes at once. Like maybe they deploy it to a multi-threaded server or something like that. And then they build multiple pages at once. That would be awesome for like, I know some people run stores on Gatsby that have 100,000 products or something like that. I can only imagine that the build for that would be very slow because there's no they're they're working on this thing at Gatsby called incremental builds, meaning that if you just change one page, your build will be mm. faster. And I think Netlify does that as well, actually. But yeah, so it's I, I probably wouldn't reach for it now, but I bet that will change in the future as well. Yeah, it's something to keep an eye on it at the very least. 
Next question is from Chris F. Hey, Scott and Wes, I hopped on the view train from jQuery land and I am loving next Nuxt and Gridsum. So Nuxt and Gridsum are the next and Gatsby of Viewland. However, I am hearing good things about Gatsby. Would you say that it is worth learning Gatsby and the whole React ecosystem over that matter over Gridsum? This is mostly a small, medium-ish side projects that connect to a headless CMS. Thanks. Oh, this is tough because I don't, maybe Scott will have something to say on this, but like, mm-hmm. I don't know if the feature set of Gridsum is parody with Gatsby. Gatsby is a force right now. They've got tons of people. I, I would say, yeah, not anymore. But at one point I would say it was close. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So it's tough because like normally I'd say no, like pick your, pick your stack and, and just go ahead and use that because it's so cool. But we're in a bit of an interesting spot where it's weird that Gatsby is like the thing and it's only built in React. I wonder if they ever will like roll out like a, a view Gatsby or something like that. Dude, I I would just think they would take over Gridsome because if you go to Gridsome's yeah. website and they got some juice, man. I mean, it, it's definitely pretty sweet. And to be honest, yeah. they, they really solved some of the issues in a better way than Gatsby. Like the image stuff is better in Gridsome in my mind. So I, I think Gridsome has some really great ideas. Personally, if you're a Vue fan and uh, you're comfortable with Vue and Gridsome, I wouldn't just jump ship just for Gatsby because uh, Gridsome gives you most of that good stuff, not to mention it's very fast. Uh, so I, I don't think you'd be gaining a whole lot and you'd spend a lot of time having to invest in learning React, not to mention that, but learning the Gatsby way of doing things on top of that. I think you're getting mm-hmm. just enough with with Gridsome, Nuxt, and uh, Vue. Interesting. And a lot of these like Gatsby plugins, they're just Node plugins. They're just Webpack like loaders. A wrapper. Like the, it's very little of it is actually React specific. So I would assume that it would be easy to port them over if they've not already been been moved over. So. Yeah, I like that. I would say no, not probably not worth it. Yeah, you might even be frustrated. Like I said, the like the image stuff is so much better on Grid. So I'm sorry, Gatsby, yeah. I love you. But yeah, yeah, because you instead of you just have a G hyphen image, you pass in the path. And then if you give it something like a width, then it just generates that. You don't have to do the whole query thing. So you're saying loading an image, you shouldn't have to write a, what, 40 lines of right. GraphQL? <laughs> yeah, right, yes. <laughs> yes, I am saying that, and Gritson uh, got that one right, so shout out to them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay, next question. <laughs> uh, this one's from Mateus. Hey guys, huge congrats on the show. I've been listening since episode two, and it's fantastic. Thank you, Mateus. My questions are... Episode one wasn't very good anyway, so good job. It was. It was fantastic. What are your thoughts on CSS preprocessors nowadays? With the advanced news features in CSS, do you guys really think it is worthy to use all those? Well, the thing about CSS preprocessors is that you're not shipping them. It's like a preprocessor, right? So there's really no harm. I still reach for SAS or auto prefixer or post CSS. I, I still almost always reach for one of those if I'm writing CSS and not style components myself. Because I just can't live without that sweet nesting. I love that nesting. I primarily use CSS variables now, but if I was building for a site that needed to support older versions of IE, I would be very distraught without having some sort of a variable system in my CSS. Uh, other features, I don't really use functions and stuff like that, but I think they're, they're definitely there's definitely still a place and a use for them to make your life easier within writing your CSS. Yeah, it's, it's just like... I think of them not as 
this like diff totally different way of writing CSS like SAS was. But I think of them as just making the future CSS now as much as possible. Yeah. Some things you can't polyfill or or transpile, but a lot of it you you can CSS color functions and, and whatever. So I think of like there's this really good plugin now that is sort of like the babble of CSS. It's called post CSS preset env. And you just mm -hmm. tell it what browsers you are supporting and it will figure out which things it needs to transpile and which things it doesn't need to. And then at a certain point, maybe you won't be transpiling anything. So that's sort of how I look at it. And I don't necessarily reach for SAS or, or Stylus all that much anymore, just because I'm, I'm much more on the web standards train. Things have been moving really well for the last couple of years. Yeah, totally. Uh, next question we have here is from Justin Scott. Can you talk a little bit about why you decided to switch back from Meteor after putting in all the effort to convert Level Up Tuts to Next.js? Man, this is like the Next.js show. This is great. I'm about to start a new full stack, and I was considering Next until I heard you switched back. P.S. Love both of you guys. You're all fantastic. Thank you. Yes, I'm curious. Is this so? Scott yeah. spent all this time converting his platform <laughs> to Next.js. Yes, a lot of time. And then um, he was like. Not stoked on it. And then it turns out Meteor got bought and it's looking like that truck is moving again. So why didn't you like Next.js for your platform? Okay, so let me preface this by saying I I love Next.js. I really like it. I've or worked fairly a lot in it over the past few months. And I really like Meteor as a platform. My reasons why I was getting off Meteor in the first place is because you could see the progression over so many years of less and less work being put into it of no fault of the Meteor community themselves. Just the investment being put into Meteor was, you know, not happening. So I could see the writing on the wall that maybe this framework wasn't going to be around forever and wanted to think about moving over. So what I did is I maintained a Meteor branch and an XJS branch side by side, which allowed me to do a lot of really cool things. And it was really just like easy merch from one to the other. And so I was able to run these things side by side and really see them in action next to each other. And for the most part, Next.js worked really nicely. I used their API routes to power my GraphQL server, which it didn't feel as nice as my Meteor one because my Meteor one was just like, here's a standard server where with the API routes, you had to think about it a little bit differently. Serverless functions every single time they connect being a serverless function, as we talked about in the the last video, it was just a little bit different, right? So those aspects were all fine. But the the big rub for me came with how Next.js establishes pages, routing in those aspects. I am not a fan of the routing where you have one route page where every single route of your entire application is listed in a routes page. I, I would think of that as being like how we would have done it like React Router 3 or something. But me personally, I'm more of a fan of nesting routes. So I have my route set up and then let's say on, um, so like forward slash whatever, my, my app page would have a route that would be, then take me to the tutorials layout route. And then inside of tutorials layout, I would have to have several more routes. And then inside of there, I have a couple more routes. And I do that throughout the site, whether it's for admin or whatever. And largely React Router was built for you to be able to do that. The problem is when you get into applications like Next.js that expect you to do everything on a folder basis, uh, it gets a little messy because what you end up creating is a bunch of wrappers. So instead of having 
nesting within nesting within nesting, you end up having to write, here's a wrapper, here's a wrapper, here's a wrapper. All your components are wrapping, whatever. And it was just a different way of doing things. So that said, it wasn't worse. It was just different. What do you mean by a wrapper? So let's say you have forward slash posts. Yes. And then you have forward slash posts, forward slash three. Yeah. And then your your forward slash posts would show you all of your posts and forward slash posts, forward slash three, it would show you post number three. Yeah. That's not a good context because I wouldn't use a wrapper for that. So let's think about this. Like you have an, (laughs) let's say you have an admin layout, right? Your admin layout includes the normal stuff, but it also includes an admin navigation and a different layout container maybe, right? So you have that admin layout. So now each of your admin pages in the way I would have done it before is you have a component that's your admin layout and there's several routes inside of there, including the navigation. But with Next.js, what you do is you'd have an admin layout component that would have a children prop. And then any admin page would have to be wrapped in that admin layout component. And so what happens is the rendering gets kind of messy where every page is getting a full re-render no matter what, sort of like Gatsby, right? When you go to a new page, every page has a full new re-render because that's just how the, the layout system works within Gatsby and next you have this one page. That's a wrapper, right? Uh, what is it in Next.js? I think it's like the underscore app.js or something. Yeah. So you have one page or one component that's essentially a wrapper in those platforms. Where with mine, it was much more the React router way of doing things, deeply nested routes. And it became just less fun to work in. And in my mind, way less organized. Uh, I was having just not, I don't want to say issues, but I was, I had to take advantage of things like wrapping components and render props more than I wanted to. At the end of the day, I ran them side by side and I didn't see a huge benefit to one or the other. And that's when tiny bought meteor and it was going to be essentially a lot less work to get us fine with a meteor. And the fact that meteor was going to see new investment and see new growth and see new modifications and things like that, then it became, in my mind, a good idea to just stay with what we have rather than go through the headache of doing this migration and then having to deal with the inevitable bugs and issues that are going to occur from doing such a major migration to a different platform. So it was definitely a sunk cost thing where I was holding on to the Next.js branch for a little while saying like, you know what, I spent all this time on it. Maybe I should keep it. But at the end of the day, Meteor has been seeing a ton of advancements. I'm really happy with where the community is going. And I'm a big fan of the platform. So the fact that future picture has been clarified for me, I'm more than happy to stay on Meteor now. So that's really just it. Ah, interesting. Not sure I totally understand all the nested routing stuff. I'd probably have to see an example, but that's good to to hear that. Yeah, it's, it's hard to express because... Uh, it all just comes on comes down to how you write applications. And this is the way that our site's been designed from day one. So if I was building a new application from day one here, I might start with Next.js. But the fact that I've already had this application written this yeah. specific way makes it very difficult for me to migrate there. Awesome. All right. Let's talk about our next sponsor, which is Kyle Prinsloo's freelancing course. It's available at studywebdevelopment.com forward slash freelancing. So this is everything you need to master freelancing. Kyle just told me he just sold his 2000th spot in this thing. So obviously people are enjoying it. He's got all these pretty cool reviews of people who have taken it. So if you're thinking like, okay, I'm a web developer, I'd like to make a little bit of extra cash or I'd like to 
go totally freelance myself and, and go out on my own. This is a course that's going to help you through that, teach you the, the ins and outs, the things that you need to know to be a freelance web developer. So what does it come with? Well, this this bundle comes with the Freelancing and Beyond ebook, the Web Design and Beyond ebook, a bunch of templates. A new thing that was added is a CSS Spice Chrome extension, which is pretty cool. I'm just taking a look at it. You can get it at cssspice.com. Um, it's just a sort of helpful editing and debugging tool that, that has come out. That's pretty nifty to be added in there. That Web Design and Beyond is a new ebook that got added as well. There's a professional legal contract. It has been written by a commercial lawyer. So if you just need like a good contract that's been written by uh, an actual lawyer that comes with it. So there's all kinds of stuff in here. Questionnaires, checklists, SEO stuff. You get lifetime updates, which is really cool. I appreciate when people do that. I do that with my courses as well, where you just like you bought it once, you get the, the new stuff that was added to it. So check it out. Studywebdevelopment.com forward slash freelancing and uh, enjoy. Thanks so much to Kyle for sponsoring. Uh, next question is from Brandon Next. <laughs> is this another question about Next.js? Hey, Wes and Scott, I recently started an internship at my favorite, one of my favorite tech companies where I'm using Ember.js and Ruby on Rails. I love the team. People are so nice, but I'm not super passionate about the stack. I'd much rather be on something like React and Node.js or Express in my day-to-day coding. Do you think it's worth staying in the position? And then we got like another question that's almost the same question. So this is from my- Michelle Keems. I'm thinking about doing a boot camp that teaches Ruby on Rails for the back end. I hear a lot that Ruby is a dying language, but at the same time, I know it's used by some big timers such as Airbnb and Shopify. Yeah, man, I I once saw Toby, who's like the creator of Shopify. He posted their like stats for their unit testing. Mm-hmm. And like they, for every line of code, I think they have two lines of unit tests, which is nuts. Like, like I think that is the only way you could have Confidence is such a huge code base. Yeah, Anyways, for real. could you please explain the relevance of Ruby and Ruby on Rails we'll have in 2020 going forward? Do you think it's worth learning for new developers? Thank you. By the way, listen to podcast. Good. So we, we see questions like this a lot where something's hot for a while um, and then web developers have short attention spans. So something else becomes hot mm-hmm. and uh, people think that that other thing is not hot anymore and is deprecated and is old and is, uh, is not all that useful. So I think that a lot of people place too much weight on the tech stack when the reality is is this stuff will always be changing and you as a developer need to use the tools that you're like, the tools are obviously important. We've talked about them all the show, but these are all good tools that you're talking about. Ember, Ruby on Rails. These are some of the like, I think some of the best tools in our industry for creating web apps and websites. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. The fact that we don't talk about these things on our podcast or you don't necessarily hear about them all that often doesn't mean that they're not very good. It's just that there's different hotness in the industry right now. It's probably not worth quitting your job unless there's other things that that were hurting. But I don't think a, a tech stack is very rarely, I think, a, a chance to quit your job, especially yeah. something that is so modern like Ember and Ruby on Rails. You're not talking like this is a 40-year-old cake PHP install that <laughs> yes. no one has wanted to update forever, and it's just a nightmare. Sounds like it's a decent stack. Yeah. Yeah, Rails powers so many of the most popular sites on the internet still, and uh, I would still consider Rails to be an exceedingly modern platform overall and a, gr- a great platform. Every time I worked on Rails, I had a really nice time using it, so 
I think you'd be getting a, a lot of uh, good learning building sites with Ruby on Rails. I don't think you need to, to worry too much about that. Yeah, I was I was um, writing a scraper for my bank the other day um, just because like I I wanted to like I wanted to see over time and I wanted to be able to chart my daily up and monthly ups and downs of the investments that we have. Yeah, and my bank didn't like have that. So I wrote a scraper that would log in for me and download a CSV of the data. And then I have that running every day. And then what I'm able to do is go back. And now I have that, that data over time. Anyways, have you seen personal capital? Does that work in Canada? No, nothing works in Canada. OK, personal capital is like does exactly that. And it's fantastic. Oh, so, really? Yeah, it's so good. Yeah, it's very good. No, nothing works in Canada. Okay. Um, so <laughs> we don't have anything good here. It's all awful. So, but it's okay. I'm a developer. I can fix my own problems. So I, I was just like looking through how it, how it's working and trying to figure out like what are the API endpoints to log in and what are the API endpoints to download this data. And I was like, oh, this thing is built in Angular and Java Spring. And it was like the <laughs> most wicked app ever. Like it uses JWT and it's super fast. The interface is super responsive. And I was like, I was just like using this app that they had built. It, it just rolled out like they had like an old one for a long time. But I was like, this is where this is on two tech, two pieces of tech, Java and Angular that people probably wouldn't say are hot. But this is an awesome experience using this thing. And also the fact that I was able to like puppet it and mm-hmm. like be able to scrape it and download the endpoints in like a, like a half an hour means that it was obviously built with single page application in mind. So just personal uh, antidote there. Yeah. An- an- anecdote. Anecdote. <laughs> Remember when we talked to ATN about Missive and Missive is an email client we both use and that's built on Backbone uh, in this fantastic Coffee app. script. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, shout out, shout out to Missive. All right. Next question is from Bess Wass. Uh, Bess Wass <laughs> asks, what's the deal with headless CMSs and CMSs? Uh, I hear you guys talk about them all the time. Sanity, Keystone, Prisma. I'm not sure what they're good for. To me, it just seems like a UI to my database. But isn't that what my application is? It seems like it would be easier to have my front end talk to my back end to talk to the database rather than learning how each CMS wants to do things. Am I missing the point? Okay, you are missing the point because what it is, is it makes all that super easy. It makes it so you don't have to write the code. Have you ever tried to code a form that updates data? It sucks. I have my whole level up tutorials, whole admin dashboard is that. I mean, it's all custom forms and all that stuff. And every single time I create a new anything, I have to create a table. I got to create the forms. I got to create all the queries and mutations. I have to do all that myself. And uh, it would be so easy if a CMS could do that for you. Really, the benefits of using a CMS or a backend is that it just takes care of all that stuff. Uh, the admin forms, the validations, the versioning, the plugins, organization, and it does it all in a spiffy interface that your clients will be able to actually understand rather than some janky form that you threw together. Yeah, and not to mention the entire API layer, yes. whether that's a REST API right. or... GraphQL layer or or anything like that, like that, that takes a lot of work as well, where these things sort of just get you up and running. So a headless CMS makes a lot of sense, especially in a website where you're just have data. Well, it's it's just like saying it's like saying, well, what's the version? What's the deal with using React? Couldn't I just write the framework myself? Yeah, you could. 
<laughs> you, you could, but it just saves you time. Yeah. And also like the the other qu- the other point that I have here is that like a headless CMS sort of decouples where your data lives and, and where your data is being displayed. Mm-hmm. So like, for example, one of I talked to the folks at Sanity and one of their biggest customers is um, Tim Hortons and Burger King. There's this company that owns them all. And I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say that or not, but whatever. I'm going <laughs> to. Uh, anyways, uh, like that data, like you think of any company that has a bunch of data, where is that data being pulled into? Well, probably the iPhone app, the Android app pulled into the the like the boards when you're ordering and you're looking at the menu. It's pull, being pulled into there. Obviously, on the website, it's being pulled in uh, in store kiosks. Like a lot of times people have data that needs to be pulled in to seven or eight different places and having a sort of decoupled CMS where that data lives is important. And it's not just tied to a website and it's not just tied to a a single application that someone's using. Word. Uh, Next question from JC. Is this RJC? I don't know. I was, oh. I feel like JC, JC, JC would put his last name, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like he would do that. Uh, what does Svelte need for each of you to use it instead of React in personal and future developments? Ooh, that's a, a good question. So I've, I've never tried Svelte, so I don't know, but I am pretty on to React because of the momentum it has in our industry, both in terms of like, what do people want from me in terms of training courses, as well as like, there's so many resources out there for using React JS. Like I just look at it like something like Express. I always reach for Express. Why? Because Express is like the dominant one and there's so many resources out there for it. Is there probably something better out there? Probably, but I'm I'm pretty happy with it. What about you? Yeah, I mean, for me, for to to use Svelte on one of my own projects, what does it have to do? Nothing. It has to do nothing different because I love Svelte. <laughs> I think it's fantastic. Amazing. Yeah, I want to. Uh, I'm going to rewrite my own website in Svelte. Sorry, hashtag sorry. I'm no. I'm I'm very uh, I'm very excited to use Svelte on more things. In fact, I'm planning on doing a new Svelte course for Level Up that I'm thinking about right now with Meteor because I saw a repo like two days ago that was an Apollo API with Meteor and Svelte. And it was like maybe the most elegant, smallest code base I've seen to do some very powerful stuff. So the amount of things you can get up and running really quickly with that stack and have it be beautiful and, you know, easy to read. Nothing, man. I, I love I love Svelte. It's it's fantastic. So I would check it out. I think it, it, it's a great thing to I mean, like your reasons are totally valid. And I totally agree with you that the the industry momentum is certainly in React's favor and will most likely stay that way. I can't imagine the entire community hopping on the Svelte train like that. But Svelte's a fantastic platform and it's not going to go anywhere. So I think it's a it'd be, it'd be nice to work in. Yeah. Yeah, I, I always get the feeling sometimes people think that I don't like things because I don't use them. And there's just too much awesome in the world there's for too me much, yeah. to do everything. And it's not like I don't like Svelte. It's just that I've not used it before. And that's all I have. Yeah. Okay. Next question is from Jonathan S. I freelance on the side as well as have a nine to five. The other dev I work with mentioned that he'd help if I ever needed to work on a client project. What are your thoughts on doing freelance work with somebody you work with at your job? Okay. Well, is your job at, at 
agency because that is a little hairy there if you're you know skimming some projects on the side with some agency members that said i've done it myself and i don't really think it's a huge problem i think it's totally valid i think you know the, the depends on how the work came about and what your role is at the agency because some agencies are small enough that every single person is expected to be hunting for projects and if a project comes into you it would be ethical for you to send that project on to your managers if that is the climate of the company. If you start skimming stuff on the side here, then that might get a little bit interesting with interpersonal relationships at your business if they find out. That said, if it's a larger agency or the expectation is that many people are doing freelance work on the side and that you can hunt for your own projects, I see no problem with that. But it is, I think it's a matter of the temperature within your own agency and, and what things are like there. Yeah, just don't get sued. Make sure everything is, right. is okay. Not, yes, that's another legal <laughs> aspect of it as well. Next question from Bryce. Boys, my team is currently in the design phase of a rewrite of our biggest product ever. We are switching from a Perl backend Ooh. to Node. But for some reason, our tech lead decided on Happy for the Node framework. I spent a little time with Happy and it seems cool, but I'm not sure about its longevity when compared to more established frameworks like Express. How do you feel about Happy um, and should I push it? So Happy has been around yeah, for a while. Happy time. came out, what, maybe like six years ago. I'm trying to look right now. Yeah. The thing with Happy was that Express was always like a server rendered framework. And then when building REST APIs came around, these frameworks like Happy and Koa sort of came around and said like, hey, it's a little easier to build REST APIs with these things. And that's not that's not all they do. But Express was very much like a server rendered uh, engine at the start. So nothing wrong. I, I would definitely say like, yeah, that would be weird if if they took some like brand new framework out there. But Happy and I'm going to loop Koa in with this as well are certainly fantastic options for it. I think the only thing you might lose out on is there's not as many as many like weird, obscure middlewares for it as Express has. But if you are building like a huge product, you probably would build those middlewares yourself. So I don't think it's all that that big of a deal. And I would be totally I know I just said I would always pick Express. But if I were to like being like thrown into a project where it uses happy, I would be very happy. Yeah, here's what here's go you. OK, uh, here's what I here's what I like about happy. Uh, I haven't used it myself personally, but just looking at their GitHub, it, well, the last commit was five days ago. There's 12,000 stars on it. There is nine issues and two pull requests. That is fantastic. How many big projects do you go to that end up having like 100 issues and, you know, 20 pull requests? And that to me is an interesting sign of of uh, how the, the development is going. So I think. Uh, Happy seems to be on it. I mean, I have not used it personally, but I, I've heard good things and it seems like it's really nice. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I would have no issue with somebody picking Happy over Express. I think from what I've read, it says Express is closer to Node and less opinionated. So maybe Happy does some stuff for you that Express doesn't. But it seems like a good choice either way. Yeah. All right. One more. Last question is from Andrew Wapole. I'm a dev that recently joined an agency for the first time. What? Hot tips you have for living in Devon in the agency life, especially around time management, time estimation and dealing with clients. Peace. Ooh, this is this is a good one. So I did quite a bit of freelance work with agencies and 
I think my tip would be you have to aggressively manage your own time because project managers, there's certainly lots of good ones out there, but there's, in my experience, I've encountered much more super stressed out, super tight timelines from project managers that want you to get everything done much faster and and quicker and things like phone calls and emails and whatever that will just eat up your actual time. So I would very clearly just say to a lot of my clients, like, look, I can't, I'm not going to reply to these emails. I'm trying to get work done. (laughs) And like, it's important that you communicate with them, but at the end of the day, you're the developer. And if you need to get stuff done on time, you need to aggressively rally against phone calls and meetings. Yeah. And, you know, it depends on the agency size. It like really, to me personally, depends on the size, because if it's a small agency, you're going to be expected to interact with clients a lot more. Uh, We didn't have project managers at my first agency specifically because there was designers, developers and like the business manager and then the marketing person. So like we didn't have project managers checking in. So you were your own project manager. You went to all the meetings, you sent out all the emails, you did all the contacts. And that's something you need to be on top of if that is your role, because you can't always push back on that stuff if nobody else is going to be doing it. That said, if you do have project managers and it's a little bit larger of an agency, then, you know, you might be expected to not interact with clients very often. And that to me is sweet spot for being able to get a lot of dev done. That said, you do need some of that experience. I became a much better, I don't want to say salesperson because I wasn't doing any sales, but I, I became a much better speaker talking to clients and expressing why I made these choices. And uh, here's the stack. And what does that mean for you? And what are the technical aspects of these things? And uh, what do you need to know without giving you too much? And how does this person like, like if I was able to interact with the client a little bit more, I was able to better craft the backend CMS for whatever I was doing for them. So it really depends on the agency side. I would recommend upping your your communication skills overall are are going to be like invest time becoming a better communicator via email, calendar, to-do lists, whatever. Make all of those expectations known and it will help you out greatly in the agency life. All right, let's move on to some sick picks now. I'm going to sick pick a blog post from Matt Stauffer. He put together this massive, I think it's like 8,000 word blog post about how to get really good video and audio from like if you're doing live streaming or videos or even like even just want to have like a good quality webcam. And he went through like both all of the like budgets. So if you only have a hundred bucks to spend or if you've got like an old SLR this is what Scott does. You've got the Elgato 4K HDMI input. Yeah, but it's not an old SLR. Okay, it's a Sony mirrorless. Yeah, <laughs> Scott's got a $2,000 webcam. $3,000 webcam. Thank you very oh, much. Oh, excuse me. Yes. <laughs> Jeez. So there's there's that. I, I took my wife's old camera and hooked it up and it looks freaking amazing. And it's great. He just like went over like the differences and pictures of lighting and not lighting and, and things like that. And it's all just in one spot. So if you ever want to know, how do I get better? Even I think even if you're just like a a remote worker, I think having like a good quality audio and webcam makes such a difference. So I've been on so many awful conference calls with people where they've just got their Android earbuds in and they're sitting in like a glass box or something like that. And the (laughs) audio is is just awful. Right. So this is cool. Check it out. It's at Matt Stauffer, M-A-T-T-S-T-A-U-F-F-E-R. 
Com. Just go to his blog. It'll be there. I'll put a link in the show notes as well. Cool. I have a book, audio book that I'm going to uh, sick pick here. And this is the book called Caffeine, How Caffeine Created the Modern World by Michael Pollan. Now, this author is really super good. If you've read any of his other books, I've really enjoyed some of his work. However, this this book... I am not good with words. I'm just going to say that I'm, I'm a, you know, I can talk on a podcast, but I'm not a good writer and I'm, I'm certainly not an elegant uh, wordsmith. This book is crafted so dang good. <laughs> it's cra- this book crafted good. Yeah, no, I mean, this book is, is fantastic. Uh, the way he talks about the history of caffeine, the way he talks about, uh, you know, he, he takes sort of like an idea like, Hmm, well, this caffeine, how could it, you know, how, how has it shaped us as human beings and how are we addicted to it? And it makes sort of no judgments upon you. He really takes the stance of in my opinion, like the, the curious person without being sort of like overbearing or just in general judgy of people who consume a lot of caffeine, such as myself. And it really, this book, it's not, its intention isn't to make you drink less coffee or to consume less caffeine, but it is there to make you consider it. And so I had a great time listening to this book. It was two minutes. If you have an Audible subscription, it's free. I I breezed through this thing at 2X and I really, really enjoyed it. So if you're an Audible subscriber, uh, get this. If not, I'm so sorry. Maybe find it some other way. I'm not advocating for anything, but maybe. Uh, I really enjoyed this book. (laughs) And if you consume a lot of caffeine like I do, then it's definitely a worthwhile listen. And if you're a history person, it's a very worthwhile listen. A lot of good history stuff in here. Sweet. Uh, shamelessly plug uh, my beginner JavaScript course. Go to beginnerjavascript.com. It's a fun, exercise-heavy approach to learning modern JavaScript from scratch. It's beginner-friendly. If you're intermediate, it'll help you brush up, fill in the holes here or there. You'll just go through it a lot faster than if you were a beginner. Check it out. Use the coupon code SYNTAX for 10 bucks off beginnerjavascript.com. Word. Cool. Uh, I'm going to plug my latest course that's going to be out on Leap Day, February 29th. It's going to be on Framer Motion, creating really awesome interfaces, animations with Framer Motion, where we build some really great stuff. The cool thing about this course is we teach you, you know, topic, 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 and then we do a couple of projects. So we do a modal accordion, topic, topic, topic. Then we teach you a slide in menu, topic, topic, and then we do something practical. So everything is, is all based on not only teaching you the skills, but really building practical animations that you're going to build in your application. If you want practical animations for React, check it out at leveluptutorials.com forward slash pro. Sign up to become a level up pro. Save 25% if you sign up for the year. All right, that's it. Thanks for tuning in. Catch you on Monday. Peace. Head on over to Syntax.fm for a full archive of all of our shows. And don't forget to subscribe in your podcast player or drop a review if you like this show.